ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Selena Green, back to bring you The Country Hour all this week. Thanks for your company. It's been a very wet weekend across parts of South Australia. I'd love you to send me your rainfall figures today. Give me an idea of well, just how much you've had. And is it welcome or not for you at this time of the year to get that much rain? My talkback number is 1300 Be great to uh, get a bit of a vibe of where it did and didn't fall and in how much over the past few days. If you'd prefer to text, you can do that. Send it to this number, 0467 922. 891. Also coming up, how seriously do you take biosecurity on your property? You'll meet a South Australian farmer who's been celebrated for going above and beyond in their biosecurity practices. Well, I think for us it's basically our whole business as we sell rams all throughout Australia, interstate and everything. So we've just got responsibility, not just for ourselves to have good health, but also for our clients. Otherwise we wouldn't really have a business. You'll hear more about that very shortly. But first today, a deal with the Greens has been struck that could see more than 700 gigalitres of water used for farming in the Murray-Darling Basin return to the environment. The agreement includes $100 million to help First Nations people buy water, the establishment of an independent integrity audit and the legislated commitment to return 450 gigalitres of water a year by December 2027. Since the $13 billion Murray-Darling Basin Plan was legislated back in 2012, more than 2,100 gigalitres of water each year has been allocated to the environment, but a shortfall of almost 750 gigalitres a year remains. The plan's deadline is currently legislated for next year. The Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, has been seeking to amend the legislation to extend the deadline for the plan to allow new water-saving projects to be considered and to buy back more water. And she says she's happy the Greens and the Federal Government have come to an arrangement. We know that as we go into another hot, dry spell, it is more critical than ever that we deliver fully on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. I'm very pleased to say today that Labor has been negotiating with the Greens party and that we have agreed to a number of significant amendments to the Restoring Our Rivers Bill, which will improve the bill and allow the Greens party to vote to support the Restoring Our Rivers Bill in the Senate. The amendments go to uh, greater transparency and accountability uh, against water recovery targets, making sure that the water that has been set aside for the environment is actually delivered. Amendments go to um, making sure that water saving and water efficiency projects that aren't going to be delivered are actually withdrawn, that we are operating off a firm base. Amendments go to making sure that there's water for the environment in both the northern and southern parts of the Murray-Darling Basin and that there is a stronger role for First Nations communities across the basin in decision-making around particularly how environmental water is used. We're also uh, delivering on the Aboriginal Water Entitlement Program. This was a promise made in 2018 by the previous government and broken by the previous government. 
Uh, $40 million was promised and never delivered by the previous government. Uh, as well as delivering on this promise, we will be increasing that amount of water set aside for First Nations water entitlements to $100 million. I want to thank Sarah Hanson-Young for the very constructive way we've worked together to deliver these important changes to the Restoring Our Rivers Bill and for her support subsequently for the bill. As we go into another hot, dry spell, it is inconceivable that we fail the environment and fail inland communities again as a parliament. Labor has a proposal to fully deliver the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. It's been improved with cooperative negotiations with the Greens Party. We want to see the, the bill delivered so that we can deliver water for communities and for the environment. It has to happen this week. If this legislation doesn't pass this week, uh, we will go uh, into a, a range of automatic uh, timelines that come into play under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Wouldn't be good for farmers, wouldn't be good for rural communities, and it would be a disaster for the environment. That's the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, and more on these to come later on in the country are today, so stick around. It's just going on 10 minutes past 12. Well, the Global Climate Conference, COP28, it's due to kick off this week in the United Arab Emirates. Food systems have often been overlooked in the 30 years since world leaders first agreed to cut greenhouse gas emissions and halt climate change. But this year, agriculture will be on the agenda like never before. So all this week, ABC Rural is looking at how food systems are affected by and contribute to climate change. And Fiona Broom has more. From the initial flood a month ago, we think that there's been at least 10,000 cattle lost. Pasture paddocks and stubble paddocks were all burned out. About six kilometres from the river. I mean, we're not on the riverbank. Here we are in water again. We sort of estimate the area impacted by the weather we've seen would probably account for around 20 million tonnes. World leaders are meeting this week for climate talks in the Arabian desert city of Dubai, a city that has just been hit by intense flooding. And the world has just experienced its hottest 12 months in recorded history. In most of Australia, that's meant the driest winter farmers have ever seen. And as the oceans warm and disrupt rainfall patterns, farmers are also experiencing flooding on a new scale. Agriculture is the sector in the world that is most affected by climate change. This is Natalie Collard, the CEO of the member organisation Farmers for Climate Action. We know that because they're impacted the most and their, their livelihoods depend on being able to succeed in variable climates, farmers have been doing that forever. Um, but in an era of climate change, repeat fires, floods, droughts, ascending insurance costs through the roof, but also the fine art of farming successfully has got harder for every single Australian farmer. Richard Eckard agrees. He's a professor of sustainable agriculture at the University of Melbourne. And he says food systems are being dramatically affected by the world's changing climate. Most sectors in agriculture have lost about 20% of their productivity in the last 20 years. And so um, it, it's more exacerbated in southern Australia where there's, there's a very clear signal that the millennium drought wasn't a drought. It was a step change in our climate. And so we've seen most of southern Australia from Western Australia all the way through to the east basically drop in rainfall as all our weather systems have moved about four to 800 kilometres south. 
In Northern Australia, it's a lot less clear. You know, if you take the weather at Longreach, the rainfall at Longreach that goes from, you know, almost nothing to thousands of millimetres, um, it's difficult to tell a long-term trend within that. So there's no doubt that uh, the climate has already changed and that agriculture is already being affected. So if farms are producing less food and fibre, how serious is the economic impact of climate change? Here's Australia's Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt. Our farmers are on the front line of climate change and the modelling we've got from ABARES within the Agriculture Department shows that the average Aussie farmer um, has had a profit fall of about 23% or nearly $30,000 per farm over the last 20 years because of changing conditions due to climate change. So really, we need to be doing more both to preserve farm incomes and make sure that we keep those markets open into the future, quite apart from the sort of environmental benefits. Beyond the economic impacts, Natalie Collard says climate change is taking an emotional toll on farmers as well. Food and fibre producers in Australia are being severely impacted by climate change at the moment. Um, We know um, from research that the National Farmers Federation has done that this is causing high levels of anxiety and stress for farmers. And part of that reason is climate change is not a new thing that food and fibre producers are dealing with. Australian farmers have been grappling and adjusting and adapting to climate change for well over a decade now. We know less emissions will mean less fires, floods and drought. And it's not just the headline disasters that are affecting farmers. Unreliable weather makes it hard to plan, according to Tammy Jonas, the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. She says that means agriculture will be central to future climate solutions. Farmers are some of the, I guess, the frontline victims of the same thing that we're part of causing in terms of the impact of of the major disasters that we're seeing, the changing climate and what will grow when, um, even without a disaster, just whether you can finish a crop without a frost coming at the wrong time or a, a heat wave at the wrong time. That interplay between causing those things and being a victim of those things puts farming in a unique position in climate change. That's Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance President Tammy Jonas ending that report from Fiona Broom. And our climate and agriculture coverage continues right across the week in the lead up to COP28's launch, which is on Thursday. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. And hello to our texter uh, who says, Hi Selena, we had a nice drop of 20 mils here at Pink's Beach, which is in the southeast, uh, over Friday, Saturday and Sunday. I'll keep your rainfall figures coming through because, well, speaking of water, and while much of Australia's groundwater levels in Australia are above average, many bores in the state southeast are currently below average. That's according to the Bureau of Meteorology's recently updated Australian Groundwater Insight. And while the region might have got a little top-up in recent days, it is a trend that has been continuing for a while. So what will low groundwater levels mean for primary producers and how's it going to be managed? Well, the manager for planning and engagement with the board, Dr Liz Perkins, says low rainfall and high usage by primary industries is contributing to the low levels. We know climate is changing and we know that rainfall patterns are changing and so this has a big impact on how much water makes it back into the system. But at the same time, demand for water is increasing. Hotter, drier climates under under a changing climate means people have a greater demand for water. So it's likely that combination of both. So putting it into a historical context, how low are we at the moment compared to other years and dry times? 
that's a, it's a, that's a challenging question. So this region, um, particularly, I guess, in the lower limestone coast area, does have long-term declining groundwater trends. You know, how much that decline is, is different across the prescribed wells area and how much the concern that is depends on how much decline has occurred, where that decline is happening and how long that trend is going for. But, you know, in some places we are seeing, you know, the lowest levels that we've ever seen because we are experiencing an ongoing declining trend. So how does the Landscape Board manage this? As you said, demand's only really set to increase with primary industries really counting on that water. If it's reaching historic low levels, how do you balance those two things? So the Limestone Coast Landscape Board leads water resource management in the Limestone Coast region. Um, We manage groundwater resources, I guess, in kind of four key ways. One is science and data. So groundwater is a really complex system. So we, of course, seek to continually um, improve our understanding of what's happening in the system. We also do on-ground interventions or actions where we seek to protect or maintain or even improve wetlands. So getting water to wetlands to protect them. But perhaps one of the kind of critical ways and uh, something that a lot of people might be aware of is water allocation plans. So water policy, essentially. And the the Landscape Board is the designated authority. We're responsible for creating, reviewing and amending water allocation plans. And there are five water allocation plans for the limestone coast. In terms of the lower part of the region, one of the critical things that's been happening at the moment We've been reviewing the lower limestone coast water allocation plan and one of the critical things we've been doing is asking that question of, you know, this plan, it was developed and implemented about 10 years ago, moving forward and and giving a chance, given that the climate is changing and demand for water resources is increasing, can the plan as it is now sustainably manage the resource moving forward? Is it appropriate or do we need to amend that plan um, and change things in that policy Uh, to sustainably manage the resource. And where are you up to in that process? Have you found that there will be changes needed? So that process has been running for about 18 months. We're just concluding and and finalising the outcomes of that review now. We'll be making some public announcements about the outcomes of review in December and following on from that. So essentially what the review and the announcements will decide is does the plan need amendment and if that was to occur that would commence in 2024. What are the impacts of low groundwater for the region and for primary producers? You know ultimately a decline in groundwater level means decreases in soil moisture, it can mean increased costs to pump the water out of the ground, it can mean the need to deepen bores so it can come at a cost for primary production and many of our primary production industries are dependent on the groundwater resource. So if it's not being managed sustainably, that's a concern, I guess, for the ongoing um, dependence of those industries on this system. It can impact public water supply, not so much a problem in the lower part of this region, but in other areas, you know, declining groundwater levels can create uncertainty around public water supply. And of course, declining groundwater levels can also impact First Nations cultural values as well. 
That's the Limestone Coast Landscape Board's Planning and Engagement Manager, Dr Liz Perkins, and she was speaking there to Elsie Adamo. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. It's 20 minutes past 12. Well, Livestock SA has awarded its inaugural On-Farm Biosecurity Farmer of the Year Award with Border Leicester stud owner Ellen Arney announced as the first winner. Livestock SA, said Ellen, who's from Inverbrackey's Border Leicester stud near Strathalbum, goes above and beyond in their biosecurity practices to protect their farm, their clients and the industry from spread of pests, weeds and diseases. Ellen says some of the practices they've implemented over the years are just part of everyday life. And Brooke Nindorf asked her what she makes, what she thinks made them stand out. Well, being a stud, we're already a closed flock, so we're not trading any sheep as well. And we're in the OJD and brucellosis program so there was already a certain level that comes with that that we've got good boundary fences most of it's double fenced or the eight foot high emu fence and then so the main risk is probably people coming onto the property and we have foot mats out at our sale that people have to walk over before they come in and wherever they've parked their cars and walked through we just won't have sheep there for a few few weeks. And you mentioned there about the, the double fences. What, how does that help when it comes to biosecurity? Oh, it's mainly keeping any neighbouring sheep out because that would be your biggest risk is your neighbours having infected sheep of any sort. So it's just as the other layer of protection that you're not necessarily worrying about. But you still do the fence checks before you move stock into a paddock, make sure there's no trees on the fences or anything like that to ensure there's nothing coming in or going out. What about when it comes to bringing uh, new rams onto the property? What do you do there? Yeah, we uh, will purchase ram, new ram maybe once every four years or so and they just get quarantined once they come here. So they're shorn, treated and then put separately for at least three weeks before they enter a mob. And they're all so from approved OJD accredited studs. And are people pretty good when it comes to when they, they visit the farm, they understand what, what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think so, because at the end of the day, like our biosecurity affects their biosecurity. So they've also got to protect themselves. I don't think there's ever been anything against using a foot mat or anything like that, as it's quite simple. It's not like we're asking them to wear a whole nother disinfectant of clothing or anything. It's um, just a simple task. And why is it so important to get biosecurity right on your property? Well, I think for us it's basically our whole business as we sell rams all throughout Australia, interstate and everything. So we've just got responsibility, not just for ourselves to have good health, but also for our clients. Otherwise, we wouldn't really have a business. Do you think that helps when people see you've got such a good plan in place that you know helps helps your business as well? Yeah, I'd say so. It provides that another level of trust that you're um, getting reasonably sound stock and it comes from a certain standard. And is there anything else that you're looking at to um, implement on the property when it comes to biosecurity? I think things are always ever-changing, so it'll be something that just keep reassessing over time as other things come up, any new health issues or anything like that. But, um, yeah, it's just about constantly assessing what you're doing and we've still got a long-term fencing program of making all the boundary fences, um, the eight-foot fence along the roads and everything like that too. But it's got, got the um, foundations down that protects us a fair bit already. 
Elanani there from Inverbrackey and their stud uh, was the inaugural Livestock SA on-farm biosecurity Farmer of the Year award winner. The runner-up of the award, Nomad Farms, Tom Bradman, who with a mixed farm enterprise also demonstrated excellent on-farm biosecurity and she was speaking there to Brooke Nindorf. Time to head to the Weather Bureau. Jenny Horvath's our forecaster today. Hello. Good afternoon, Selena. And we've had some rather interesting weather over recent days. Looks like we might be getting some more interesting weather. Yeah, that's right. A little bit complex again today. So we've got a surface trough over the northeast of the state. So we'll see that coupled with an upper low that's coming across from the west. So we're already seeing a little bit of thunderstorm with our surface drop around Lee Creek. And we're also starting to see a bit of development around the Flinders as well. Um, south of Hawker there. So a little bit of thunderstorm and lightning activity already starting up for this afternoon um, in association with that surface trough. And then our south of the bite, we've got this upper low that's going to start to move across a western parts and Air Peninsula a little bit later in the afternoon. So as those two sort of combine together, it, um, the upper feature will make that um, deepen that surface trough and we'll get another surface low developing overnight and we'll see that all tracking to the east so we are expecting to see thunderstorms broadly across um, sort of northeastern pushing into central districts today so not in the far southeast or most of the um, northwest pastoral district but the sort of a, a swathe in the middle of the state there that we are expecting to see some thunderstorm development and maybe turning into some patchy rain at times especially as we head into the overnight period and our thunderstorm team will be monitoring those storms for development because there is the potential we could see some severe thunderstorms developing today across central and eastern districts. So we'll be watching those storms and we could be seeing some um, heavy rainfall at times that could lead to some flash flooding and some damaging wind gusts are not out of the, the question. So we'll see this system intensifying overnight into Tuesday and so thunderstorm risk overnight, especially around our central districts, again, could be severe with that heavy rainfall and with that risk is sending into more of the eastern border districts um, during the Tuesday morning as that low and upper feature continue to move to the east. So again could be a little bit wet at times so again watching for those severe storms with the potential for some heavy rainfall on the Tuesday and again possibly some damaging wind gusts as well possible. So it looks like the, the greatest risk um, is staying above sort of the lower southeast. could see a little bit of shower activity there but the storm's um, looking to be north of that area and again not too much in the northwest pastoral district with everything generally starting to clear to the east during Tuesday maybe still lingering across our eastern border districts first thing on Wednesday we could see a little bit of light shower activity around our windward coast we've got another high pressure system sitting well south directing at southeasterly airstream across the south of the state on the Wednesday there and it looks like we're starting to see some activity with another trough and low over the border um, near WA and NT so in the far northwest starting to see some shower and thunderstorm activity um, developing up through there and then it's a watch this space for that one as it moves across the northern parts of the state later in the week clearing off late Friday and um, we should be mainly dry as we head into the weekend period still got that high pressure system to the south maintaining a bit of a southerly airstream 
so maybe some light showers across our windward coast first thing on the weekend mornings but as that high drifts we'll start to see our wind shifting a little bit more easterly northeasterly so really starting to dry out during the day on Sunday and potentially a dry day throughout the state by Monday so just having a look at some of the rainfall that we are expecting cumulative with these systems so rainfall up until midnight Friday so bearing in mind we've got the troughs today and then we've got that next trough coming across from the, across the north later in the week. So generally across the state, um, generally sort of most places should see maybe one to five millimetres but we are looking at that increasing to five to twenty millimetres about our central, eastern and north western parts and some localised falls of twenty to forty millimetres possible about the agricultural area but excluding the lower southeast and we could see those falls of 20 to 40 millimetres also about parts of the northeast pastoral district so the southern parts there and central parts of the northwest pastoral district and then with those heavier showers and thunderstorms couldn't rule out seeing some isolated totals pushing up to around 30 to 60 millimetres and we do have some warnings out at the moment so we do have a downy mildew advice out for our Mount Lofty Ranges, Mid North, Riverland, Murraylands and Upper Southeast districts. Thanks, Jenny. Jenny Horvat there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales for the upper and lower western districts for tomorrow, both looking at a partly cloudy day with a very high chance of showers, uh, particularly in the southeast of the upper western district. There's a high chance elsewhere, chance of a thunderstorm possibly severe and maybe some heavy falls potentially as well. Overnight temperatures between, well, somewhere in the mid teens to 21 degrees, daytime temperatures in the mid mid-twenties, mid-thirties. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. You might have a bit more water laying around at your place after the weekend's rains. Speaking of water, we are going to focus on it a fair bit in this next half an hour, particularly the Murray River system. More to come on a potential deal between the Commonwealth and the Greens on proposed changes to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And you'll hear about some dredging that's happening in the Murray Mouth as well. Before we get into that, first, let's check the headlines with Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the federal government has struck a deal with the Greens to overhaul the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which will pave the way for Commonwealth water buybacks from farmers. Under the deal, the government will legislate a commitment to return water to the environment, establish an independent integrity audit, and give $100 million for First Nations communities to participate in the water market. Since the $13 billion Basin Plan was established in 2012, more than 2,100 gigalitres of water has been allocated to the environment each year. The state government says it will be introducing a bill to Parliament this week that will tighten restrictions on where child sex offenders are able to work. At present, people accused or convicted of child sex offences are prevented from working in businesses that provide services directly to children, like childcare, foster care or coaching. The government also wants registered or accused offenders to be unable to work in businesses that hire underage employees, where the offenders will be in contact with those young people. And the federal government will today 
they try to change a set of citizenship laws created by the previous government that have been ruled unconstitutional. Under the former rules, the Home Affairs Minister had the power to strip a dual citizen of their Australian citizenship if a person was convicted of terrorism offences. New laws will be introduced today that state the final decision on citizenship matters will be resting with the courts and not with the Minister. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, yes, the Federal Water Minister has announced that she struck a deal with the Greens to pass an extension of the Murray-Darling Basin plant. The Greens will now support the legislation after gaining some concessions to permanently put in the plan additional water for the environment and more money for First Nations water rights. It means the plan's extension and more buybacks of water from irrigators are likely to pass the Senate within a fortnight. Warwick Long is speaking here to ABC Rural's Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan about what's the deal, or what the deal supposedly entails. Okay, so in return for the Greens' support, Tani Plibersek has committed that 450 gigalitres of water that was originally promised in return for South Australia's support for the original plan that uh, we know can only, well, existingly, can be recovered in a way that causes no socioeconomic harm. Well, the Greens want a legislated commitment that that water will be recovered for the environment by December of 2027. They've also committed $100 million for First Nations to participate in the water market and just as importantly for an acknowledgement of the role of First Nations and the water plays for First Nations. There's 40 First Nations across the Murray-Darling Basin. The legislation will be amended to show that connection to water um, for those groups. There's a couple of other things as well, including the ability for the Commonwealth to knock on the head state-run water-saving projects, which could be an interesting one, and also an integrity audit of the water that's already been allocated or water that has been allocated to the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, and that would be undertaken by the Inspector-General of Water Compliance. Politically then, Kath, this deal has been done with the Greens. Does that mean the legislation is sure to pass? Do the government have all the numbers it needs now? Well, I tell you what, Warwick, it's a lot closer today than what it was yesterday. The government will still need the support of two crossbenchers to get the legislation through, but you'd have to think that it was more inclined now that the Greens have backed this deal. Whilst the wait has been on to find out if if the Greens were going to support this legislation, Mm -hmm. there's been wide-scale protests in the Murray-Darling Basin in southern New South Wales last week, in Shepparton and in northern Victoria this week. Have those protests been heard at all from the Minister? We haven't seen protests in South Australia or in the northern basin. The minister was asked this morning if this water could come from the northern basin as well as the southern basin. This is water that could be considered for buybacks. Minister Plibersek was clear that the buybacks would be targeted, that they would only be from willing or voluntary people selling, and that they would be done with an intention to lower the socioeconomic harm to those communities. She also refused to say how much water she anticipated could actually uh, be reallocated through water buybacks, um, opting to to see what new projects might be put on the table and see what other ways the water could be saved and and reallocated to the environment. What happens from here, Kath? If the legislation is to pass, it will need to pass in a hurry. No doubt Tanya Plibersek will be working the phones trying to get uh, some of the crossbenchers to now support. In fact, even Sarah Hanson-Young was saying she was calling on uh, other senators to support the bill. I think she was calling on her South Australian Liberal Senate colleagues to perhaps back this bill. 
you know, if the laws are to change, it will need to pass the Senate uh, by the time the Parliament rises, I think, next Thursday. So we shouldn't have long to wait to find out what happens. That is the ABC Rules Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan speaking there to Warwick Long. Right now, you're with Selena Green on the South Australian Country Hour. Speaking of the Murray, after almost a year of natural flows flushing through thanks to flooding, the Murray mouth will once again be dredged. The dredging involves removing build-up sand in the mouth and two adjacent water channels to ensure a clear passage of flow from the river to the ocean. And it's been a big operation with more than 14 million cubic metres of sand removed from the mouth since 2002. Now, this announcement comes as the federal government brokers that deal with the Greens on the Murray-Darling Basin plan currently before the Senate. To talk us through these developments, I'm joined this afternoon by the South Australian Water Minister, Susan Close, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. We'll come to the to the dredging in just a moment, but uh, we just heard a bit there about the deal with the Greens on the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Uh, could see more than 700 gigalitres of water used for farming each year allocated to the environment through buybacks. What do you think of this development today? Oh, this is tremendously exciting. The Ever since Tanya Plibersett became the Minister, we have started to have a sense that finally this plan will be delivered and the fact that she's introduced this legislation and now appears to be able to get the support of enough people in the Senate to get it through is of tremendous worth to the ongoing sustainable use of the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, I have an old-fashioned view. If you sign up to a deal, you should deliver the deal and that is all that we have been asking for in South Australia from the start is that the amount of water that we all agreed was necessary to allocate to the environment to have a sustainable Murray-Darling Basin should indeed be allocated to the environment. We've had to accept that will take longer than initially planned. We're not happy about that. We're deeply concerned about the drying period that we we seem to be entering now. But we recognise that 10 years of inaction can't just be wished away. It caused a delay, but at least finally we are getting somewhere with looking after this basin the way it deserves to be. Of course, the deal t- details of the, this deal are coming out today, but do you know any more about this supposed ability for the Commonwealth to, to knock on the head state-run water-saving projects? Uh, look, I know the details that's been uh, put in the public. I've, I've had a conversation, obviously, I've had many conversations with Tanya Plibersek and uh, just love her commitment to doing the right thing and the thing that, that has been signed up to. I had a brief conversation with, Ta- with Sarah last night as well, Sarah Hanson-Young. Um, so we'll see how that we don't expect that that particular clause will affect South Australia, but we'll see how that unfolds. But what they're getting at is that there are a number of infrastructure projects that have been talked about for some time that uh, are deemed or hoped to be deemed as the equivalent of actually putting water into the into the Commonwealth environmental water holders' hands. So let's do some infrastructure so that it flows differently, so that it behaves differently, and we'll, we'll say that that's the same as putting additional water. Um, South Australia has always been sceptical about whether that indeed does have that positive effect for all of the projects, and the Royal Commission that was held some years ago that reported in 2019 uh, was similarly very sceptical and would like to see a proper review. So the fact that the Commonwealth's hand will be strengthened through through those changes, I think, are probably a good idea because this isn't, this isn't about who gets to claim political victory at all. This is actually about the sustainability of the Murray-Darling Basin. So we need to make sure that we're not just saying we're doing things, but, but that those things work, that they are actually about having a sustainable Murray-Darling.
And concern around the, the potential impact of buybacks does continue. We heard there before about some of the protests that have been happening over New South Wales in recent weeks. Um, you know, a text that's come into the program only just today says, you know, it should be called the Destroying Our Farmers Bill. Is there still a lot of work to do to allay the concerns of those along those river communities about the potential impacts for these buybacks? Yes, look, clearly there does have to be work because if people are anxious, then they become resistant to the kind of change that, that other people regard as being utterly necessary. But let's just be clear about this. We are talking about the sustainable use of a healthy working Murray-Darling Basin. So we're not talking about stopping farming, stopping irrigation or stopping townships being dependent on water. We're ensuring that those activities are able to continue. And everyone knows that in this drying climate we're experiencing, we cannot continue to over-extract. So let's just accept that that's true. We also know, because of the last 10 years of inaction, that not buying water for the 450 gigalitres of additional environmental water means that you don't get that water. So there are no other magic ways of, of delivering that much water. You can deliver some, so we're at about 26 gigalitres now with efficiency projects, and I'm sure that there's more water we can get through efficiency projects. But we're not going to get to 450 without buying. And you can also design buying schemes in a way that do minimal or zero harm. Often what happens is that an irrigator will give up some of their allocation. They'll use the money that they get in, in giving that up to make their own operations more efficient. They tend to spend the money that they get locally. So you get, in fact, a positive economic and social impact. I understand the anxiety, but I think that uh, people uh, need, need to appreciate, first of all, the larger picture, that we need a healthy Murray-Darling Basin, and secondly, that there are ways of doing this that, that absolutely minimise or, in fact, have no harm at all. I'm speaking with the South Australian Water Minister, Susan Close, today. Let's go to the dredging of the Murray mouth and how concerning is it that the mouth needs to be dredged again so soon after the high flows? Well, both concerning and completely unsurprising because we don't have a healthy Murray-Darling Basin yet because we're so far off achieving the plan. So, yes, one of the indicators that's always been well understood about how healthy the, the Murray is is whether you're able to have the Murray mouth open every every day of every year. And, of course, uh, in fact, up until the time that we had the flood, we were on 24-7, 365 days a year dredging. We are now looking like having to go back to that. So we've had to start start dredging today. And that's just a marker of even with a flood and the wonderful positive environmental benefits, as well as recognising the very, very serious disadvantages and hardship that many communities went through. Uh, even with that experience so recently behind us, uh, we are now having to go back to dredging. It just shows how desperately we need to treat this river better. Uh, so, yes, we've, we've had the contract in place, knowing that it was likely we would need to do this, and here we are back again in the mighty Murray, the, the uh, most famous and largest river of Australia. Uh, yet again, the, the mouth doesn't open naturally. We have to get a dredge out an absolute tragedy and indeed an indictment on the inaction of the, the federal government previously for 10 years, nine years, and also the other states just resisting, 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 taking seriously the needs of a healthy Murray-Darling. Is this an expensive, oh, well, I think we all know the answer to that, it's a pretty expensive process. I mean, does the state fully cover the cost of the dredging? Uh, 
The Murray-Darling Basin Authority covers it, so we do it under contract to them. Uh, SA Water is the one that has holds the contract with the, the company, a good South Australian company that, that does that maritime constructions, uh, but it is entirely reimbursed by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority on the basis that you can't actually have a healthy river system if it can't move out to sea at, at the end. And uh, what, what happens, of course, if you allow it to, to fill up is that the, the uh, salt and other toxins uh, move their way up and it becomes a river that's no longer able to be used, that fish die, uh, that you can't draw for irrigation. So it, it, it's necessary for the health of the entire system that this is, is open. It would be wonderful if, if it could be open naturally uh, because we don't, haven't yet managed the system properly. We have to do it mechanically and it costs, it's, I think the contract is something like $30 million. We had a, a, a question from a listener, Andrew, called in to ask if there's engineering solutions that could be investigated when it comes to the mouth, if dredging is not a long-term solution. I mean, are there other options being looked at or is dredging really the only option? Uh, well, it has been the uh, medium-term solution. You know, it's been, been going on for years and I'm not sure what kind of engineering solutions um, Andrew might be considering always open for innovation, of course, if, there's, if there is something that can be done. But, you know, the, the actual way to keep a, a river's mouth open is to have enough water flowing down it. And that is the way that it operated naturally in the past and ought to be one that we can get back to. It will be one of the indicators that we've been successful with the Murray-Darling Basin Plan if we can at least for some months of the year or for some years at a time, we cannot have dredging operating. That, that would be a real marker that there's enough water moving. Because, of course, the, the Murray it opens at the mouth, uh, moves through the mouth, indicates that water is flowing, and that is utterly necessary for a healthy river system. Minister, thank you very much for setting aside some time for us this afternoon. Excellent to talk to you. Thank you. That is the South Australian Water Minister, Susan Close, speaking there. It is 15 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. So what do locals of the Lower Lakes think about the return of dredging at the mouth? Well, Sam Dodd's a dairy farmer, a member at Lake Albert and a member of the South Australian Murray Irrigators Committee. He told Eliza Berlage it's an unfortunate but necessary action to keep the channels open. I'm afraid it's probably a necessary outcome. I mean, it's unfortunate that we've sort of come to the stage so quickly after a, after a flood that we need to go back dredging again, but it's just the reality of the fact that unless there's sufficient outflows of water from the river system going out to sea, every time incoming tides come in, they, they deposit sand inside the Murray mouth, and it's an inevitability that you're going to get uh, an inadequate exchange of water without keeping the channels open. And where we are with just river flows, but I guess it's an unfortunate necessity that we need to go back to removing sand manually or by a dredging process. Um, and, and as far as whether it's better or worse using multiple dredges or just the one dredge, I guess those who are better informed than me to the sort of whole technology of the process would know that uh, you know, it's, if a bigger dredge might, might be far more efficient in the process of doing it. What was it like seeing the mouth having just water flow through it naturally over the last year? It was tremendous. I mean, this time 12 months ago, we were only just starting the beginning of the drought process and it, just, it was just a completely changed environment down here getting back to what you would deem to be a natural fly. I mean, you know, the, the lakes themselves, probably I've never seen them all, certainly in 50 years, haven't seen the, the levels of water in it and the Curong benefited massively from having you know, decent high flows. I mean, there's actually a bit of an irony there for a period that the, the Curong, which normally looks rather aqua, given the fact that there's more uh, seawater and marine water in there than what the traditionally there was when it was a truly an estuarine environment, it actually looked more like pure lake water 
had a very grey look at it this time 12 months ago, whereas now you look at it and it's back to being blue seawater again. So uh, it's just the reality that there's not you know high enough levels of river flow, just given the, the, the diversions that occur in you know modern society. So it's just yeah, I'm afraid an inevitability that dredging has to occur. And it's been uh, yeah pretty dry the last few months, but how have things been looking for you at your farm? Uh, well, yeah, it's been dry. But, I mean, I, thankfully on the back of the floods of the, of the last 12 months ago, there's sufficient river storage. So uh, you know, from an irrigation point of view, we're on 100% allocation, so water restrictions are not going to be an issue for a year or two from an irrigation point of view. And uh, we've had sufficient you know, early winter rain that there's plenty of subsoil moisture. So from a local point of view, um, we've had a quite a reasonable spring and things have been looking really good. And are there other things that state or federal governments be, could be doing to uh, yeah, improve flows of water in the lower lakes and around the Murray Mouth and Coorong? Yeah, I mean, it's been an ongoing issue. The fact that so much of the emphasis of the Basin Plan has been about improved river flow to the end of the system, and yet some of us feel that we've sort of missed the opportunities through a lot of the upgrades that have occurred along the rest of the river, whether they be for environmental watering or for uh, irrigation efficiencies, to improve outcomes for environmental watering down the bottom end. Because we're still currently using exactly the same level of technology to go about utilising water. In other words, through the the barrage systems, they were effectively designed in the 1890s and built in the 1930s, and yet there's effectively been no further upgrades since that period. And it just seems a little bit odd with the levels of automation with nearly every other bit of watering or irrigation systems that there isn't been the upgrades to the barrages because certainly my understanding having spoken to those who run the system that they feel that there is opportunity for automation I mean there's over the 500 gates in the barrage system which are over the five barrage I believe that there's about 30 or thereabouts gates automated and I'm told that they are extraordinarily useful for best, best utilising environmental conditions to release water and it just does seem odd that there hasn't been uptake of a high level of technology in the barrages. Of course at a federal level, uh, federal government has uh, brokered a deal with the Greens on buybacks and on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan which is before the Senate at the moment. The deal could see more than 700 gigalitres of water used for farming each year allocated to the environment through Commonwealth buybacks across the Murray-Darling Basin. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean that's come I think almost not totally surprisingly but left field the fact the federal government should have entered into such a deal to go to that level of buyback. I mean, there was a feel or a feeling that it might occur, buyback to some extent over the 450 gig, but clearly to go out to that sort of level, they're going to buy back water or proposing to buy back water on the so-called downwater, and this is going to have a massive impact upon irrigation across the basin. I mean, just to put it in some sort of proportion, that level of irrigation, I think I'm right in my number, that's about twice of South Australia's entire irrigation extraction. So when you put that in some level of perspective, that's a tremendous amount of irrigation and economic loss to the basin. Now, I'm not saying it's not necessarily particularly being a, a, a lower, a, not just a lower end, end irrigator, but someone who actually lives in the environment and probably puts environmental outcomes at a higher level of precedence than irrigation. But nonetheless, when there's still opportunities to better utilise the water that we're already getting down here, to propose to buy back some of that level of water is just uh, just an, quite an extraordinary um, deal to have been entered into. 
That's Lower Lakes Dairy Farmer Sam Dodd, and he's speaking there with our reporter Eliza Berlage. Quite a few of your texts coming through on this. Um, share a few. This one says, the vast majority of country our listeners don't want buybacks. Uh, this one, also no name, it says, we've just had a massive flood and still have high flows. This text doesn't believe the minister's telling the whole truth about why dredging is needed. Uh, what else have we got on the text line? Uh, Mary says it's pathetic that Labor states blocked the Murray water and the toxic blame of the federal government is wrong. Steve is in Clare. His text says, why not use buyback funds to build desalination plants and take South Australia off the Murray? And this text just says, water cost, uh, market cost of water just increase. Well, speaking of water, I'm going to stick with this for a little while longer. We're going to head to Menindee now and to ensure that the Menindee Lake stay replenished while maintaining the demands of the River Murray, releases from the lake system will be closely monitored heading into summer. Murray-Darling Basin Authority Executive Director of River Management Andrew Reynolds told Andrew Schmidt that the River Murray is currently in reasonable condition but it's going to be important to continue watching water demands downstream. There are reasonable flows in the Murray. As I say, we're back in regulated conditions. So all of the water that's uh, flowing down the river is going to meet demands, either for irrigation or uh, there is still some environmental water being delivered. And so the water that we're calling from Menindee will also go to meet demands further down in the system. Current storage at Menindee is around about 71, uh, 71% capacity. Now, we can't really compare to last year because the place was in flood, but... Uh, Historically, going back a couple of years, does that look at a reasonably healthy position at this time of year? Look, it is. The last couple of years, of course, we've had significant flooding. Before that, we had a period that was very dry and the lakes were quite low. So at the moment, they're in in a good position. Um, We're quite comfortable in um, being able to get through the, the coming season and have good water supply. We're certainly, though, thinking about what happens if it turns dry. And so we've uh, been doing a lot of scenario planning with New South Wales as well to make sure as we call water out of an Indy, we leave some water in the, the top two lakes for a drought reserve if things stay dry later on. We go back uh, August, September, you know, there was a call there to release up to, I think, 3,000 megalitres per day. And then around about late September, uh, we are advised that uh, that was going to be sort of, I suppose we could say, hit the pause button. Um, was that then the time for a bit of a reflection? Uh, look, that water we were calling it, we expected to need it, but just as we were making that call, we got a big rainfall event in the Upper Murray, uh, which put the, the Murray into unregulated conditions. So we didn't need to call that water. We had enough coming out of the, the tributaries upstream to meet all of the demands. Um, so we've certainly been thinking, though, and as we always do, plan for as many scenarios as we can. Obviously, we have to react to what the, the weather gives us as the season progresses, uh, but we've certainly been planning and, and working to make sure that as we call water from an indie now, um, that we do think ahead to what happens if it does stay dry or turn even drier uh, later on. Hey, we talk about the upper lakes. We're talking here Weatherall, Pamamaroo and Tandu. Yeah, that's right. So those, particularly Weatherall and Pamamaroo, they're a bit deeper, not as big surface area, so water will sort of last longer in them um, without evaporating. So we try to leave uh, more water in them if we can. Uh, we've got a target of 195 gigalitres that we've worked out with the New South Wales Department. Um, that will give about 12 months' supply of sort of minimum releases through the Lower Darling um, once we hit the, the trigger where the remaining water in the lakes is reserved for that local use. Mm, and uh, you will be releasing some water from uh, Corndilla into the Anna Branch? 
That's right. So we've been working with the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder and there's water being uh, going to be released down the, the, the Anna branch. That'll uh, have the environmental benefit of helping perch um, distribute from, from the lakes and move down into the Murray. Uh, but we'll also be able to get a bit of water out of the end of the Anna branch to support water uh, support supplies in the Murray. That's really helpful because the water in Condilla eventually becomes dead storage and we can't get it out any other way. Um, most years we're not able to do this, uh, but because of the flooding last year and the corn, uh, the Anna branch is all wetted up, um, then we can make use of that to get some water through that flow path. Uh, modelling is not a perfect science. We know all that when it comes to water, and we've been told for so long now a hot, dry summer, probably hardly any inflows at all. Darling River not looking healthy upstream of Menindi, but we're seeing this weather system now tracking through Queensland. Uh, I know it's probably too early to ask this question, but is, is recent modelling showing that there is potential there for some inflows? Uh, look, haven't been able to model it as yet, but certainly with the, the falls that we've seen over the last few days, we'd anticipate there would be a bit more water come down the, the Darling in, into the lakes. Not exactly sure what volume that would be, but most of our planning to this point has been on the basis of not getting any additional flow, so anything extra certainly helps. As the Executive Director of River Management with the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Andrew Reynolds, and he was speaking there to Andrew Schmidt. A few more texts that have rolled in. Dino's in Middleton. His text says, Meanwhile, 11% of water rights owned by overseas investors. Why not target these rather than our farmers? Uh, another text, this one says, There are 41 automated gauges at the barrages. Uh, Jeff Simoningi, he says there's been hundreds of thousands of dollars spent upgrading the barrages with different types of gates installed all along the barrages, making it easier to open and close. Uh, it is just going on three minutes to one. Well, still speaking of water, some rain over the parts of the state over the past few days it may have been great news for some, not so much for others. That includes our cherry growers around the Adelaide Hills. Up until last week, the season was looking pretty good as long as the weather held out. I asked Acting President of Cherry Growers of Australia and South Australian cherry grower Nick Noski what he's heard. It's done a little bit of damage to early varieties, probably more than some people uh, expected might happen, I think. Yeah, it's sort of you know, damaged some blocks to the point where they're not worthwhile commercially harvesting. This is just you know, early varieties that were ready to harvest this week. What does it mean then they'll just have to wait for the next sort of flush? What's, what, what do they do then? Yeah, that's right. So growers have a constant stream of varieties maturing you know, up till and you know, well after the Christmas period. So you know, it just it just puts a bit of a gap in their production schedule. So and a lot of that excess fruit at this time of the year is exported. Um, yeah, so it's it, it's really a, a cash flow hit to growers. I don't think it's going to affect consumers too much. We heard only last week from you that uh, it was looking like a pretty good season as long as the weather held out. Obviously, it, it didn't. I mean, is this a disaster? Is this is just sort of part and parcel of sometimes what happens around this time of year? It's part and parcel of what happens. It was, you know, uh, I think the damage was a little bit worse than what some people ex- expected on the blocks that were ready to harvest. But as you said, that is part and parcel of cherry growing. We usually get usually get one rain event over the course of a season, which does a bit of damage. So, you know, fingers crossed we, we get a good run into Christmas. That's the acting president of Cherry Growers of Australia and South Australian-based cherry grower Nick Noski. So should mean at least, hopefully, you'll still get some cherries coming into summer. Hopefully the weather holds out for them. Uh, we're holding out to say hello and happy Monday to Sonia Feldoff. Hello. 
Hello, Selena. Great to be with you. We are going to be talking today on the program about uh, fantastic things around um, uh, our our city and place. We've got Adelaide Oval, the scoreboard, getting a complete change. So what's the history of that? Plus, are you someone who received a um, uh, an ATO letter that said that maybe you owe a debt? That might be concerning to you. We'll explain what that's all about. Plus, educator abuse. Why, if you get a little hot-headed at your kid's school, you may be facing a new line in the sand. Right. Plenty coming up for Sonia Feldoff show this afternoon. Stick around for that. Thanks so much for your company today. And to those who, though, uh, all of you who shared your thoughts via the text line, I'll be back again with you tomorrow afternoon for more Country Hour. It's one o'clock, though, now. News time. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.